0: Thanks to ACAST for hosting and monetizing the podcast.
1: When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway.
0: Hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I, I am your host, Liv, and that lady who researches so much that she turns a fairly short story into a two-part episode complete with theorizing on changes made within the ancient world. Liv. And this, well, this is a continuation on last week's episode, but also kind of not? Atalanta is such an interesting character. She is, obviously, incredibly unique a woman who is given explicitly masculine traits and tasks. There are strong women in myth, obviously, but Atalanta gets to run with the so-called men, the heroes. She goes along with the men on quests. She wrestles and defeats them. She is very different from the other women that we have in the myths. And yet, she has this incident at the end of her story that just doesn't It doesn't suit the character we know of her from the other stories. So, what if it wasn't originally part of the same story? What if there were, in fact, originally two Atalantas with distinct stories, each that fits their own narratives, their own characters as they've been established? Last week, I told you the story of the Arcadian Atalanta, the woman exposed by her father, found by a bear, nursed and cared for, being found by hunters, and then further raised by them. She was a great huntress, a devotee to Artemis, who had no desire to get married, and who lived in an absolutely beautiful cave equipped with trees, flowers, and even a stream. She lived quite the life. This Atalanta of Arcadia sailed with the Argonauts on Jason's ship, she wrestled the hero father of Achilles, Peleus, at funeral games, and she won. And she was called upon by the king of Caledon, Aeneas, father to not only Dianera but the famous Meliager too, alongside countless heroes from all of Greece, to take out the menacing Caledonian boar. That Atalanta was the first to wound the boar after it had taken out some of the men alongside her. and With a single shot, she had hit the thing in the head, certainly wounding it seriously enough. The others killed it, but Meliager made sure to give her the credit for winning the first blow, and without even missing. That Atalanta story becomes blurrier then, but I promise I'll explain. First. Though the other Atalanta, this is episode one hundred and sixty one. Not those pesky golden apples again. The other Atalanta, the Beotian Atalanta. Two major events that stand out when we tell the story of Atalanta the Caledonian boar and the foot race with the golden apples. These are her most famous stories, they are the ones I told you so briefly in that mini myth so long ago, and they're the go to stories even in sources as far back as Apollodorus and Hyenas. But what if further back, two Different Atalantas ended up conflated. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's look at the Boeotian Atalanta. First, this story is even more fragmentary and varied than last week's episode on Atalanta, if you can believe it. The absolute basics remain the same, but how and why we get to those basics varies quite a bit depending on the source, and really are only told in details in this later sources. So bear with me, I promise it's worth it in the end. So, this Atalanta, this other Atalanta, was born in the region of Boeotia, north of Athens and Attica. There she was born to a father named Scenius, with no named mother. Of her childhood, we don't know much. What we do know about this Atalanta, as far back as Hesiod, even, is that she did not want to get married. She didn't want to get married, maybe just because she valued her independence, maybe because she was a devotee to Artemis, maybe because she was what we would now understand to be gay or asexual. It's only in later sources that reasons are explicitly given, and more often than not, it's just that, oh, she's a huntress devoted to Artemis, which basically leaves all the same questions open about why exactly this was what she wanted for herself. Ovid, in Metamorphoses, gives us yet another option. His Atalanta of the foot race is not an explicitly different Atalanta, though the story takes place two books after the Caledonian boar hunt. Regardless, Ovid's Atalanta doesn't want to get married because she's heard a prophecy. The oracle had told her, quote, You, Atalanta... Never will have need of husband, who will only be your harm. For your best good you should avoid the tie, but surely you will not avoid your harm. And while yet living, you will lose yourself. Sounds like a very succinct oracle, and certainly a convincing one. But regardless of the why, whatever the reason for her choices when it came to her future, that she was not keen to get married is very clear. Either she made this very clear to her father, Scenius, and he decided he didn't care, or she actually made her own pronouncement that she would never get married unless someone proved themselves faster than her on foot. And not only that, but in Ovid, where she makes this pronouncement, she says that if anyone does wish to race her, With the chance of marrying her should they win, they should also be ready to die. If they're not as fast as her, they won't simply lose the race, but she'll have the right to kill them. If you think this rule seems not remotely worth it, you'd be underestimating, it seems, the beauty of Atalanta and the amount that these ancient men cared about such beauty. Because the beauty is the through line. But it isn't just Ovid who adds the threat of death. According to Hyginus, it's Atalanta's father who sets up the foot race because, though she's made very clear she doesn't want to get married, again, she's simply too beautiful for him to pass up the opportunity to marry her off to someone deemed worthy. That's right. This woman is hot enough that many men, in many different versions of the story, are willing to risk their lives just to marry someone so hot. It is, needless to say, entirely ridiculous. But hey, if these men are willing to risk their lives for a woman this beautiful, we might as well at least enjoy the entertainment of a suitor deathmatch. And it is a deathmatch. That this race was part of A Story of Atalanta is very clear from the early sources, both text and pottery, but the details of the match are provided in later sources, specifically these two I've already mentioned, Hyginus and Ovid. And oh, are the details good. And violent. The foot race is set. The death match race is set. A number of men will race Atalanta for the honor of marrying her if they win. If they lose, well, they die. Them's the brakes. You want to marry this woman? It's all or nothing. I promise I'm not rooting for their deaths, but it is a bit refreshing, given the usual context when it comes to women marrying against their will. And there are, indeed, stakes. Hyenas describes the terms as, quote, her suitors should contend with her first in a foot race, then, a limit being set, that the man unarmed should flee, and she should pursue him with a weapon, the one she overtook within the limits of the course, she should kill, and fix his head up in the stadium. Fix his head up in the stadium. Really chill stuff. Love that Atalanta gets to do it herself, Ovid's meanwhile is a little less violent, according to his version of Atalanta's marriage footrace death match. She tells the men that quote, a wife and couch shall both be given to reward the swift, but death must recompense the one who lags behind. So either way, death, but only in the one case will your head be hung up in the middle of an athletic stadium by the woman who killed you. That's something. Regardless of these terms, there are those willing to compete, the most important of whom is a man named Hippomenes. But we must wonder, why would anyone be willing to partake in a footrace where the prize is a woman but the participation medal is death? Well, not to worry. Ovid explains to us why exactly Hippomenes would be willing to partake in such a thing. You see, he too thought it was ridiculous that so many men would be willing to compete in such a death-match foot-race. Absurd, he thought. Why would you risk such a thing, he asked. Not worth it, he screamed. Until, quote, But when he saw her face and perfect form disrobed for perfect running, such a form as Aphrodite's, He was so astonished he raised up his hands and said, Oh, pardon me, brave men whom I was blaming. I could not then realize the value of the prize you strove for. Pardon me, how silly I have been. I too will risk a gruesome death at the hands of this beauty just in case I get the chance to marry her. Is she into me? I don't have any idea, why would you ask? Certainly affection matters not when beauty such as this is at stake. Oh, man, good stuff. Totally reasonable, Hippomenes. I wish you were the one whose head was hung above the stadium. (laughs) But alas, it's not only Aphrodite's beauty he's thinking of. Hippomenes also gets help from Aphrodite herself. As Ovid tells it, There are many rounds of foot racing between Atalanta and the various possible suitors. Hippomenes watches them all compete from the sidelines, taking in Atalanta's form. And she's fucking fast. She flies as if her feet have wings. She runs faster than a Scythian arrow. He was impressed. And maybe a little concerned particularly when she beats all the men in the competition and they get their participation trophies just as promised. She killed them. Still, Hippomenes looked on, mouth agape, as he thought only of her beauty and not the men she'd just killed because they'd lost the race. No, it didn't matter, he thought. Quote, Divinity helps those who dare. And it did. But first, he's got to get his name in the running. Hippomenes has got to prove his worth. What do we think? Is he going to be charming? Or cringy? Cringy, obviously. When Atalanta had beat the men she'd been racing, and presumably killed them all, though Ovid isn't explicit about the violence, Hippomenes approaches her, and he speaks. He tells her, quote, where is the glory in an easy victory over such weaklings? Try your fate with me. If fortune fail to favour you, how could it shame you to be conquered by a man? Megarius of Onchestis is my father, his grandsire, Poseidon, god of all the seas. I am descendant of the King of Waves. And add to this, my name for manly worth has not disgraced the fame of my descent. If you should prove victorious against this combination, you will have achieved a great, enduring name. The only one who ever bested Great Hippomenes. God, he's the absolute worst. Atalanta, well, she falls for Hippomenes and his nonsense. This is, of course, Ovid's take, as he's the only one who gives us any good details to work off of. Still, to me, her so easily falling for a guy who speaks to her like that, whose masculinity is quite so toxic, is another indicator that, at least when these stories first came about, this was not the same Atalanta as last week's. And frankly, even if she doesn't actually go for it, if she just competes with him because she has to and she thinks she's going to win, even still, the events that are to come, they don't fit quite so well with the Arcadian Atalanta. But all the same, this Atalanta, particularly this Atalanta of Ovid, is charmed by Hippomenes. She begins to lament that he's asked to compete. "'He's so young and pretty,' she thinks. "'I think I like him, so I don't want to have to kill him.'" She has a whole speech about it, and it's just about as cringy as Hippomenes' speech. It ends with the narrator, who, incidentally, is Aphrodite herself, saying, "'All this,' the virgin Atalanta said, "'and knowing nothing of the power of love, "'she is so ignorant of what she does. "'She loves and does not know she is in love.'" So the foot race is set. The pair are cheered on by the crowd, by Atalanta's father, and they prepare to race. Our narrator, Aphrodite, hears Hippomenes' prayers to her and answers with three golden apples. According to Ovid, they are not the apples of the Hesperides of the Trojan War fame, but golden apples from Aphrodite's own orchard on Cyprus. Very special love apples. She gives them to Hippomenes before the race is started, and she explains how to use them. And so, off they go, Atalanta and Hippomenes, beginning the foot race. In this version, Atalanta isn't even trying her best. She's totally enamored by Hippomenes gods knows why. And so she is clearly trying to let him win, or at least not try her best so that maybe he will step up and win himself. She hangs back, tries not to pass him, the whole thing. But the best part is even with her legitimately not trying her best, something very clear in the text is that even with all of that, she's still beating him because she's just that fast. And he's boasted all about his own prowess, his speed. He's been so sure of himself, even before Aphrodite had given him the golden apples. And yet, here is Atalanta, not even trying that hard, and still too fast for him. So he uses the apples. He uses the apples just as Aphrodite had instructed. When Atalanta passes him, he tosses an apple ahead of them. No one but the two can see the apples, and Atalanta is distracted. She glances at it, catching sight. She stops to grab it, to pick it up from the ground. Then she keeps going, and she catches up with him, passing him again. Seriously, the woman is so fast. If I knew anything about fast runners or modern Olympians, I would make some joke. But I personally think it's funnier that I know literally nothing. Atalanta, even in her distraction, has caught up with Hippomenes. So, he throws another apple, and again she is distracted. She slows and picks it up from the ground, and speeds up again. Again reaching Hippomenes, again passing him. Hippomenes only has one apple left, and there's barely any race left for them to finish. Desperate and seriously worried that even with these distractions, he's about to be beat by this woman, and killed for it. so. Hippomenes calls on Aphrodite before he throws his last apple. He asks that she be near to him as he does it. He throws the apple and Atalanta sees it. She's distracted by it, once again keen to have this shiny thing. But she hesitates. She knows how little of the race is left and she's weighing her options. But in the end, it isn't up to her. Aphrodite makes her stop for it. Aphrodite makes her delay herself long enough that Hippomenes wins the race. And so they marry, and we think maybe this is the last of their story? That they live in some sort of happily ever after nonsense, their marriage having come about through deep and gross trickery? Still. But no, many years later, Aphrodite narrates, the couple found themselves in a cave near a temple to the great mother goddess Cibele. She is an eastern goddess worshipped more broadly during the Roman time. They, they find a cave near this temple to her and they have sex in it. This is of course very scandalous and for their crimes they are transformed into lions. Or, 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 the pair marry because Atalanta's father explicitly agrees that Hippomenes won the race, but due to ingenuity rather than speed, ugh, and while this is all well and good, Hippomenes then forgets to thank Aphrodite, and so on their way to his home, they stop on Mount Parnassus, and she transforms them into lions. For Hippomenes' indiscretion, because apparently... The gods deny lions the ability to have sex out of love. That's why it's a punishment. It's all very odd. And that is the second Atalanta, the Boeotian Atalanta. Specifically, it is the Atalanta of Ovid, who I find interesting for a number of reasons. First, the whole connection between these two Atalantas is odd to me, tenuous at best. It feels like a stretch of their two characters to connect them. But more so, in the Ovid, this Atalanta is totally taken with Hippomenes in a way that feels disingenuous like it's controlled by the gods but it's also vaguely nicer than the idea of her desperately deeply not wanting to marry anyone and then having to because she's tricked small consolations but still a consolation she does like him she does find him attractive she doesn't want to kill him in their foot race that's something so why two atalanta's In the past, and even in both of my personal books, I've theorized that there are just two regions described as being Atalanta's homeland because the two different regions both wanted to take hold of this impressive heroine. That's certainly an appealing explanation, and it isn't impossible, it's pretty broadly understood that this was the same Atalanta. But I think it's so much more interesting to look at the evidence that we have that they were actually two different women. And again, I got this idea from the Gantz books, Early Greek Myths, referenced in the episode's description, as always. And I leapt at the chance to tell this theory to you because, well, it mostly just, it makes her more interesting. But also, I personally have always found the foot race to be just so out of character for the Atalanta of the Caledonian Boar. The same Atalanta that sailed on the Argo, who defeated Peleus in a wrestling match, who lived for the hunt, and survived out in the depths of the woods all by herself. That Atalanta doesn't seem like the type to lose such an important foot race, a race for her very future, just because she became distracted by a few golden apples. A huntress like her doesn't get distracted. She has only one thing on her mind, and that is staying unmarried, staying who she feels she is, and keeping the life that she's had. The Caledonian boar scared the living shit out of some of the other men she hunted with who thought they were sneaking up on it, and yet Atalanta shot a single arrow and hit it through the head. She isn't jumpy. She isn't easily distracted. So I've always looked at this golden apple story and thought, it doesn't fit. Not that it entirely fits this other Atalanta either. She's pretty hardcore herself. But still, the skills involved in each story make for a convincing argument. One is a huntress with incredible instincts. The other is a very fast runner. Obviously, though, this kind of thing, things not quite fitting, happens all the time in Greek myth. Stories are tacked on, they're changed. Characters are associated with many regions because many regions want to associate themselves with heroes' strengths and importance. Stories often don't fit with the characters that we know, and that's just a matter of, like, time... Time passing, ancient priorities, conflations, versions by Romans or later authors generally, notes by even later people putting their own thoughts and feelings into the myths. All of that is normal and doesn't necessarily mean that there are actually two fully different characters being mushed into one. But the Atalantas are different because evidence. (laughs) Until, generally, the time of Apollodorus, Hyginus, and Ovid, all of whom come from most likely hundreds of years after the establishment of the Greek pantheon of mythology, these two different bits of Atalanta's story are told separately. The Atalanta of the Caledonian boar hunt and the Atalanta of the foot race are not explicitly associated with one another until these later authors who are working with lots of much more ancient sources. They're smushing them together, they're injecting them with their own knowledge and biases that come from their time, and in some cases their own Roman personalities and histories. In terms of the ancient Greek of it all, and looking at sources from before the first century CE, we know an an participated in each of these things. We know that an Atalanta had a child, Prathanopius, who would go on to be one of the seven against Thebes. He's named in Aeschylus's play, which is called The Seven Against Thebes, and he's described as being the son of, quote, a mountain-bred mother. He's also explicitly from Arcadia, but his father isn't mentioned, Neither is anything about Atalanta's story herself. Elsewhere, her son, Parthenopius, is described as the son of a man named Melanion, or Meleager or even Ares himself. He is never, though, described as the son of Hippomenes. So, if this is true, that originally there were these two different Atalantas we have one who retains most, if not all, of her Artemis-style huntress badassery independence. This Atalanta of Arcadia, the Atalanta of last week's episode, eventually does have a child, yes, but she may not have even married the man, whoever he may be. This Melanion that we know little to nothing about, he is named in some sources, but there's no real details given, so he, has, as the potential father, becomes a bit of a mystery. Still, Gantz mentions some references to him that I couldn't even find on Theoi. It seems that Melanion, as a lover of Atalanta, is mentioned by Ovid, but not in his Metamorphoses, which is what I've shared with you today. Instead, he's mentioned as her lover in the Ars Amatoria, his Art of Love, parts of which I read to you somewhat ironically for Valentine's Day. There... He describes their love as forming after Melanion followed Atalanta around as she hunted, carrying her nets and things, trying to convince her that he's worth her time. This gives us at least a bit of hope that when Atalanta did finally find love, if she did, it wasn't because she lost a foot race after the man cheated, but a man instead proved that he was worthy of her, and at least the way I see it, proved that she could continue her life the way she wanted could continue the hunt and live to live her life in the wild, just with him by her side. Mel meanwhile, makes some sense. Perhaps something happened between them before he died, and she had their child. Or Ares, where no information is given. But in that case, she certainly didn't marry the god, she just would have had his kid. Other than having a son who goes on to do his own impressive things in the Battle of For Thebes, Atalanta remains known as this woman who lived by herself, lived off in the woods, able to defend herself, the woman who traveled with all the men, who hunted the Caledonian boar with all of them, the woman who held her own. And then, quite separately, we have the other Atalanta, the racer, the runner, the Boeotian Atalanta, who first appears in texts as far back as Hesiod, and who has perhaps less evidence of her explicit desire for independence, but who is no less interesting. This Atalanta also didn't want to marry, but she couldn't avoid it as the other one could. Still, she made the best of the situation, made it difficult for the man to finally succeed in marrying her, threatened to death upon those who didn't perform at their peak in her deadly foot race, literally killed a bunch of dudes who lost to her, and even, as Hyena says, maybe threatened to, or did uh, tack up a man's head above the athletic stadium where they raced her. Even still, in the end. She had this ridiculous distraction moment, this burst of toxic masculinity in an otherwise empowering story of the two Atalantas. This is a lot of rambling, but I just find it so fascinating, because when you look at the two Atalantas this way, these two different characters, they stand out pretty clearly. One is a huntress. The other is a crazy fast runner. And we both know both of these stories are super duper ancient, like archaic period at least. They appear in fragments, mentions, in visual material. We know that playwrights wrote plays called Atalanta and Millieger, but we don't have the stories in detail. We just know there was an Atalanta who killed this Caledonian boar alongside a bunch of dudes, and an Atalanta who ran a foot race in an attempt to avoid marriage, with golden apples being the reason she ended up failing. But when do they become conflated? Well, it's pretty clear from the later sources that I've referred to for these details, people like Apollodorus, Hyginus, and Ovid, they all either implied or were certain that this was just one Atalanta. But like I mentioned, these guys are writing so, so, so many hundreds of years after the stories of Atalanta were originally developed, since those earliest references of her. It certainly makes sense that, over time, these two strong and independent women from Greek myth both named atalanta get conflated into one neither has enough individual stories or qualities to keep them separate after so much time has passed and and manipulation of the stories so they mold together they become one heroine one atalanta was this all a bit excessive for one episode (laughs) maybe but here i am anyway the idea that there could just be these two women That the Atalanta of Arcadia could avoid having the sad fate of the Atalanta of Boeotia and her foot race makes me love the stories even more. I want an Atalanta who isn't distracted by a golden apple, isn't forced to marry a man because he cheated in the competition. And mostly I want two strong women of mythology in this way. I want this huntress, this badass. I want this fast runner, this also badass. You know, these two different women, these two different Atalantas. Still, in the end, one Atalanta or two, we get to tell these stories of a woman who knew herself, who knew her worth, who lived her life how she wanted, at least for a while. She was strong and impressive. She was talented and competed. She won against those traditionally heroic men. Either way, one combined Atalanta, two Atalantas. They're both just so fucking cool. Clearly. Clearly. I just rambled about there maybe, just maybe being two original identities for what feels like forever. Did that make any sense? I hope it's interesting all the same. Oh, nerds, thank you so much for listening. Oh gosh, did this episode begin just as one longer and more detailed Atalanta episode to make up for the brevity of the mini-myth? Absolutely. Did I read about these two possible Atalantas in my Ant's book and then immediately realize I needed to separate them out and theorize? Also, yes. Brevity. I no longer recognize your name. Also, big thanks to past guest and all-around lovely person Ellie Macken-Roberts, because while I was ADD scrolling TikTok when I should have been writing this, I came across a video of hers. The video wasn't about Atlanta, but she mentioned the issues surrounding looking exclusively or just mostly at sources like Apollodorus and Ovid and how they're influenced by the world around them, and they're often putting their own spin on stories that are much, 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 much more ancient than they are. I'm always aware of this when I'm researching, but I'm not sure how much I emphasize it when I do have to use them as sources. In this case, they're the only ones who have detail. And Ovid, sure, I make that more obvious, but Apollodorus less so because he was Greek, but he was writing very late. Also, I say all Apollodorus, but he's better called pseudo-Apollodorus because we don't know who actually wrote it. We call it Apollodorus. It's all very confusing. Maybe one day I'll just devote an entire episode to discussing sources. That would be cool. I'm giving myself more work and more ideas again. But for real, it's just, it's interesting to look at the way these things morph and change, the way they adapt and are combined, the way different regions do and do not want to associate themselves with certain characters and what changes they make over time to make that happen. Or the way that sources prioritize their own regions, their time periods, or when we get to later Roman writers who don't do anything like that, and so they have further unique takes on things. They're so separate. They're so like disassociated with these. I could obviously talk about this forever, but I won't, you're welcome. Instead of rambling, here's a wonderful five-star review I got recently, this one's from Lady J5232 in the US. Amazing and wonderful. Five stars. I love everything about this podcast all the stories, all the rants, all the cursing, just wonderful. Every word. I tell everyone about this podcast and I'm only just now reviewing because I am new to this platform and had to look up how to do it. I'm currently binging the whole show, and I'm listening to The Odyssey enraptured with the story. Thanks for all that you put into this podcast, Liv. I know it's a lot of work, and I, for one, very much appreciate what you are doing. Also, people who don't like it can just do something else. Thank you so much. I picked that one because I needed it. I also love my rants. What would the podcast be without them? Boring. That's what. <laughs> Let's Talk About Miss Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith handles so many things, research, YouTube, promotional material. It's endless. She's wonderful. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. You are all magnificent and wonderful listeners. I am Liv, and I love this shit.
1: When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan...